Welcome once again. Glad that you can be with us as we worship the Lord and we come to God's Word. Uh, I know this will be familiar to each of you because I know the ministers at your churches and their pattern is my pattern, which is, as I said to my congregation this morning, you know why we're in 2 Samuel 8 this morning, right? And the answer is because last week we're in, we were in 2 Samuel 7. And next week we'll be in 2 Samuel 9. Well, in our evening service, uh, I have had the opportunity to preach through the book of Exodus intermittently as we have several staff members who preach. And we've spent the last period of time, especially in Exodus 20, going through the Ten Commandments. And it is by God's providence for you and for me that we land here this evening at Exodus 20 and verse 17. The Tenth Commandment, the Last Commandment. But I think it will be instructive to us and helpful to our growth in Christ to take on an understanding of this commandment. Because far too often we truncate the commandments, we see them not as broad as they are, and that gives us a confidence in ourselves rather than driving us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Our text this evening will be Exodus 20 and verse 17. Hear now the very word of God. For the word of God is completely inerrant. The word of God is completely sufficient. And the word of God is completely authoritative. Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant. Or his female servant. Or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this evening that you would open up your word to us. That as we study your word, we would see our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. We would be driven to him, and we would see his all-sufficiency for us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we come now this evening to the conclusion of a study in the Ten Commandments. We have seen how broad they are. That when the commandment forbids something, it forbids not just one discrete thing, but it forbids everything under that heading. And what it forbids, the contrary duty it commands. And it requires us to keep God's law in thought, word, and deed. This is broad indeed. And this is important for us because it shows us our need of the Lord Jesus Christ and grace. We are not as strong as we imagine that we are. We cannot control our sin apart from grace especially with respect to this commandment, the Tenth Commandment. It is a commandment that often we ignore or we think we have under control because it is not easily discerned by others around us. But it is a commandment that is vast in its scope. It is, as we'll see later, the commandment that drove Paul to his knees. So let's begin then by looking at this commandment. The first thing that I want us to see is that this commandment forbids a heart sin. 
Now, this commandment is a good overview of the nature of all commandments. Because the commandments forbid not just actions, but they forbid our temptations, our lusts, our words, our thoughts. Jesus tells us that when we are told, thou shalt not murder, it means much more than committing physical violence. It means the tendency to think hateful thoughts about others around us, to say hateful things. And so this commandment is excellent in showing us the scope of God's law. But the other thing that this commandment does is it shows us the community nature of God's law. Don't think about morality as just personal morality. There is no such thing as a private sin. All sin affects others around us. All sin affects the Lord our God. It is sin first and foremost against God. And so there is no sin that we can keep to ourselves. There is no harmless sin. Many in our society wish to speak about sin in this way. That as long as I'm not hurting others, it's okay. But there is no sin that doesn't hurt others. And this commandment reminds us of that. We see also the fullness of this command before us. You'll notice that it is repeating. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And we may wonder why God seems to stammer here. Why he repeats himself in such short space. I don't think it's because God wasn't prepared to speak. I don't think it's because God wasn't sure what to say. That repetition is there to point our eyes to this commandment and to tell us how important it is. This is furthered by the fact that there are seven things forbidden in this commandment. We're not to covet our neighbor's house or his wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything. Again, we would wonder, why does God keep repeating himself here? I get the point, God. You don't want me to covet. But I don't think it's a coincidence that there are exactly seven things listed here. In the Bible, seven is the number of completion. Not that these seven instances are every possible thing that you could covet, even in the days of Moses. But it reminds us that this commandment applies to everything in our lives, not just discrete things. If it were not so comprehensive, we would be tempted to find loopholes. Lord, I know you said I shouldn't covet my neighbor's wife, but you didn't say anything about his fiance. Lord, don't covet my neighbor's ox, but what about his dog? What about his horse? You see, it's amazing how quickly when we come to the law of God, we all become lawyers. We find a way to find a loophole in what God has said. And lest we think that the comprehensiveness of these seven items is not sufficient, God tells us at the end, anything. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now this connection with the neighbor makes this grounded in reality for us. This is not an abstract commandment. This is not something that we are to think, well, what do you think about coveting? Could you write me an essay on coveting? No, it comes very close to home. There's a connection 
with your neighbor. You're not to covet what they have. Because, you see, desiring things in themselves is not bad. It's not bad to want a house or a car or something along those lines. If you work hard and earn the money to be able to purchase it, and you are wise with your stewardship of what God has given to you, there's nothing wrong with wanting something. It's when you want what someone else has. It's when you say, what God has given you is not enough. You need what He's given to someone else. And what we're really doing is with our hearts, we're judging God. Because He's failed. He hasn't given us what we need, what we deserve. And what we do is we put ourselves above our neighbor. Now, when we think about this commandment that way, it surely should bring to your minds many passages of the New Testament in terms of putting others above yourself, in terms of loving your neighbor. When we violate this command, we fundamentally violate the law of love. Because you see, love, Paul tells us, is the sum of the law. Love is the opposite of covetousness. How do you define love? When I especially have the opportunity to do premarital counseling, I tell those who are with me that the basic definition of love is seeking the interest of another above yourself. Putting others before yourself. By definition, self-sacrifice. And to covet is the exact opposite is to put myself before others. It's to make them sacrifice for me. It's to say that I deserve what they have. And this is important for us because the Scripture teaches us that God looks at the heart. True obedience is not possible without heart obedience. The law is much more than outward conformity than morality. And often this is the focus of conservative or religious groups. We think that the point of being a Christian is to be well-behaved, to have a model family, a model society, a model culture. And we focus on externally what we see and what we do. But this commandment cuts to the heart. In Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us that he was undone by this commandment. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Paul was a violent murderer. He was a blasphemer. He was one who did not worship the true God. And yet he tells us that of all of the commands of God, it was this one that showed him an end of himself that he could not keep the law of God, that he was a sinner who needed Jesus. It's because this command cuts to the heart. It's not only a heart sin, it's also a dangerous sin. Now you might ask, why is this a dangerous sin? It's not like murder, it's not like adultery, it's not like lying to someone. Why would coveting be dangerous? I think it's dangerous... Because it's usually the last thing that we see. We usually are the last to actually know that we are coveting. Everyone around us may see it even before we do. That's because it's a respectable sin. 
You can hide this sin from yourself, and you can hide it from the church. No church would be able to sustain itself if during the Sunday morning worship service, people came up and punched each other in the face. Or said, give me your wallet. Or lied blatantly to each other. Or set up a totem pole to worship idols. No church would ever survive one Sunday. But a church could be filled with covetors. Because we hide that sin. It's not something we speak. It's not something that we put on our shoulders and on our sleeves for others to see. No, it's a sin that is dangerous because it hides in the darkness. It can't hide from God, for the Lord our God sees everything. But we can keep that sin even from those who are closest to us. And it's also easy to deflect. There's no obvious proof of coveting. I think of all of the matters of church discipline, the hardest to prove would be coveting. Joe, we saw you coveting last week. You need to repent. And Joe says, no, I wasn't coveting. No, no, I was just admiring. I was just looking at that car. I, I don't need that car. No, no, no. You see, it's easy to deflect. But I think perhaps even more telling is that it's shameful to admit. I think often we may be willing to confess and admit if we've lied to someone. Or if we've broken the fourth commandment. Or if we've looked at something we shouldn't have looked at. But we're not quick to repent of coveting. On the one hand, it seems so small that why is it worth bringing up? And on the other hand, it's shameful. And so we want to keep it to ourselves that makes it dangerous. It's also a dangerous sin because it is a sin-producing sin. It is the root of other sins. Now, you know that there are certain types of soil in the world. And Texas soil is not exactly Kansas or Nebraska, is it? You have to think, if you will, of covetousness as the cancer that grows in the soil like Kansas or Nebraska. It takes root quickly. It spreads. It leads to other sins. This is exactly what James says. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That great chain of sin and death describes coveting. Coveting leads to other sins. It's also dangerous because it leads to dangerous consequences. It leads to war. James tells us this in James 4. He tells us that we fight. Wars and strife arise from coveting. Now, I want you to just for a moment think of one example. Granted, it's a large one. I want you to think about World War II, which really, at its root, was due to covetousness. Nations coveting things. Men coveting power and authority. Now stop and think for a moment about the millions of lives that were lost in that war only because of covetousness. James tells us that that's where war comes from. And if you think about all of the wars that we experience, they arise from wickedness in the human heart, from covetousness. 
It's also not just killing of the body. Covetousness is soul killing. Those who covet do not go to heaven. Paul says this in Ephesians 5 verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, of course, there are the caveats that we would always give to this, the context that we would always give to this, that the blood of Jesus Christ can cover any sin, that there is no sin so great, but that it cannot be covered by the blood of Christ. But what Paul is saying here is, if you live an outwardly morally upright life in which no one can accuse you of violence or theft or lying, and yet you are known and bound by your covetousness, if you refuse to repent of your covetousness, if you refuse to come to Jesus to be freed from covetousness, you are headed to hell. That's strong words. That reminds us that we can't take this sin lightly. It's not something that we can ignore. We can see examples of this in the Bible, how covetousness springs up like a flame. Think about David, the man after God's own heart. Now we know that David committed sins, great sins, murder, adultery, disobedience to God in his senses. Do you know what was the origin of David's great sins? It was covetousness. It was David looked and saw another man's wife and coveted her. And even the great king of Israel was not immune to the power of that sin. We see it in a lesser evil king, Ahab. He committed murder and mayhem because he coveted another man's land. We see it in perhaps the greatest example in Judas. Have you ever stopped and thought, what could turn Judas against the Lord Jesus Christ? Perhaps you have these kind of imaginations as I have. You think to yourself, oh, I would be so much better than Judas because I would be around Jesus. How could I be around Jesus and yet betray him and lead that kind of a sinful life? And the answer is Judas coveted. It wasn't hatred. It wasn't blasphemy. It was covetousness that turned Judas against our Lord. You know, have you ever had the experience of driving down a road and you see one of these sharp turn ahead warnings? Many, many, many years ago when we lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and I would drive on country roads to go preach, I would come and there was a particular road. The first time I came across it, there was this, you must slow down, sharp turn ahead sign. And like most American males, I said, okay, yeah, right. I'm in a big eight-cylinder Suburban. I can handle this. And as I came up on that turn, it was much sharper than I expected it would be. I had slam on the brakes. I had my then young boys in the car. They shifted in the back seat as we kind of lurched to stay on the road. But that's because I ignored that warning sign. I didn't think it applied to me. But I will tell you that after that near disaster, every other time I came across that road, I heeded that warning sign. That's what this commandment is for you.
today. It's a warning sign. Because the opportunities to covet in your life are manifold. Every single day, what we watch on a screen, what we see on our phones, what we see as we drive around and shop, causes us to desire what others have. Well, coveting is not only a heart sin. It's not only a dangerous sin. But I think, most importantly, it's an idolatrous sin. It is a sin against the providence of God. So let me ask you this question. Where is your hope tonight? Where is your hope for your life? I think far too often we are tempted to find our hope and if we can just get enough stuff that we'll be fine. And if we don't get that stuff, then there's trouble ahead. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I often wonder whether that could be written in the epistle to the Americans. Because we desire to have more and more. You've seen the bumper stickers, right? The one who dies with the most toys wins. You can't take it with you. Covetousness is idolatry because it is anger at God's providence to others. Because it's impossible to covet and not think that the one who has what you want doesn't deserve what they have. That's at the basis of covetousness. We don't rejoice in others being blessed. We are angry at them. Psalm 112 puts it this way, that the one who is generous distributes freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. But the wicked man sees it, that is, the wealth of others, and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. We're angry at what God has done for others. And covetousness is sin against God Himself. It is amazing to me as you read the Scriptures. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 5, but we also see it in Colossians chapter 3. Paul calls covetousness idolatry. He expressly makes them equivalent. It's as if Paul says covetousness is another name for idolatry. And, and we can see this again in examples in the Bible. Think of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Achan was more concerned with getting something than with honoring God, than with keeping God's command. Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us that not even gold of idols will satisfy us. And if we think about Haman in Esther chapter 5, Haman was a man who because he saw Mordecai being blessed, determined to wipe out an entire nation. His hatred of Mordecai and the Jews was sprung from covetousness. Because covetousness leads us away from God. In the very beginning in the garden, 
Eve was drawn away from the Lord and His command because she coveted the fruit. She saw that it was good, that it was desirable. And this is what James tells us. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Would you like what James says to be a description of you? But you see, that's where covetousness takes us. So Paul warns us against this in Galatians 5. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, if this is a sin of the heart, if it's a sin that is dangerous, if it's a sin against God Himself, how do we fight this sin? A few thoughts. First, by self-reflection. Spend time reflecting on why you should be content. You know the old hymn. Count your blessings, name them one by one. But do you ever take the time to do that? And do you really take the time to do that comprehensively? You may thank the Lord for your home and for cars that run and for your health and for your family and for your job and for your money, but do you thank God for light, for air, for warmth, for everything that God gives you? For there is nothing that you have in your life but that it comes from the Father of lights. And the longer we dwell on all that God has given to us, the less we are likely to covet. Our cup is full. As David says, our cup overflows. Secondly, as you reflect here, know the dangers that come in your path that lead to covetousness. I don't know that I can think of a more dangerous instrument in our lives with respect to the Tenth Commandment than the television. Because unless you are watching something that doesn't have any advertisements at all, you're going to be bombarded. You need this. You deserve this. You owe yourself this. And if you say, well, pastor, that's okay. I only binge watch. We don't have any commercials or I tape all of my programs and I fast forward through them. Well, I guarantee you that you will watch various dramatic events and say, oh, I wish I had that. Oh, if only I could. You can't get away with it even if you watch sports. You'll say, oh, why does he have to have a home in the Bahamas? I should have a home in the Bahamas. Why do they pay him that much to do that? They should pay me more at my work. We need to reflect on how blessed we are and avoid opportunities for covetousness. And secondly, this requires a conscious effort. You will not lazy yourself into obedience to God's law. Ladies, let me ask you a question. If you host a dinner for friends, do you just walk into the dining room and dinner appears? I know that many husbands think that's how it works. That it just appears. But that's not how it works, right? 
Because actually, if I understand this right, dinner begins even the day before dinner because you have to go to the store. And you have to get a recipe to find out what you have to buy at the store. And you buy what you buy at the store. And you bring it home. And you prepare it. And you cook it. And you plate it. And you serve it. It doesn't just show up. To have an enjoyable dinner with friends requires effort. It requires preparation. Now, gentlemen, let me see if I can reach into your world. Have you ever done a project around the house? Maybe... You've added on to your house or done some work in the backyard or, or you've put something in your garage, shelving or a shop or something like that. Do you just walk in and it's there? Or do you even just grab some two-by-fours and a hammer and go, I guess I'm going to build me something? No, you don't. You make preparations. You make drawings. You make plans. You get the materials. You try to keep your trips to Home Depot down to five or six in one day. And you do that because in order to be successful, you have to plan. That's what it takes to fight sin. You don't fight sin casually. You have to prepare. You have to be conscious. Finally, we not only have self-reflection, we not only make a conscious effort, we reflect on God. We reflect upon the spiritual blessings that He's given to us in Christ. We are blessed here in the United States of America. My congregation has heard me say many times that we have a standard of living that every king throughout all of history would be jealous of. That I can go into a room of my house and turn a device and get fresh, drinkable water. Do you know how impossible that is for most of the world today? And it was true for the greatest and wealthiest of men and women up until very recently. We can go to a store and get from a panoply of food. Any time of the year. Some of us are old enough to remember seasonal fruit. When you couldn't get certain fruit at certain time of the year. Young people, do you, is that the case now? Could you go home now and have a peach if you wanted? Of course you could. You can have an apple even though it's not quite apple season yet. You can get one. Because of the blessings that God has given to us. But... Of all of those blessings, they pale in comparison to the spiritual blessings that the Lord has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He's given us new life. That He's given us a home and a family. That He's given us a place that's prepared for us. That we might dwell with Him forever. And so when you are tempted to covet, desire the right things. The psalmist says that these are to be desired more than gold, more than much fine gold. In conclusion, this 10th commandment is a good summary of the law. It reminds us that we can't keep the law, even for a short period of time. And that means we need Jesus. Jesus never coveted. He was never driven by a desire for more. He never thought that the Father had shortchanged him. And Jesus has covered our sin. Every time you have coveted is covered by the blood of Christ. Every single coveting is enough to send you to hell. Remember that. Every covetous glance or thought put Jesus 
on the cross. But Jesus paid that price. He paid it so that you could be free from sin and dwell with the Lord forever. Coveting is a powerful, horrible sin. But Jesus and His grace are greater. There is hope for coveters like you and like me. Our hope is found in Jesus. Let's pray.